This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club for Monday, September 26th. I'm here in the studio at Yale University with a dear friend of mine, Kishwar Rizvi, who is an architect and art historian. Hey, Kishwar, we're so glad you're joining us. Hi, thank you. And in D.C., Hannah Rosen is with us. Hey, Hannah. Hi. We are here to talk about Amy Waldman's new book, The Submission. This is obviously a 9-11 book. It's so deeply steeped in 9-11 that when I read it over the summer, I felt like I was having this kind of pre-experience of the 10-year anniversary. And we're going to talk about, you know, the threads of religion and politics that run through the book. But I wanted to start by setting the scene for it just a little bit. The The premise of this book is that there is a jury in charge of finding a appropriate memorial for Ground Zero to commemorate 9-11. The jury has a competition with all of the, you know, bells and whistles to find the best architect to do this project. It is a blind competition in which the architect's identity is hidden. And in the opening pages of the book, the winning architect's name is pulled from an envelope, and it turns out to be Mohammed Khan. He is a Muslim. This is obviously a completely unanticipated development from the point of view of the distinguished members of the judging committee. And we see most of the beginning of the book from the perspective of Claire Burwell, who is a 9-11 widow of a very particular sort. Her husband was a banker. He made a lot of money. She lives in a very affluent suburb in Connecticut. And she's beautiful. She fills the fantasies and imaginings of all the men in the novel, or many of the men in the novel. Yes, that's totally a good point. So I wanted to start, Hannah, by asking you what you thought about Claire as certainly not the single protagonist for this novel, because Waldman shifts perspectives among the characters. But she is very important to the development of the book, as of is Muhammad Khan, who goes by the nickname Mo. And what did you think of these kind of two central characters? Well, in interestingly, I found myself more drawn to the sections about Mo than the sections about Claire. There was mm-hmm. a lot of beauty in the sections about Claire, like her relationship with her children and how she dealt with their grief. 
To me, what was interesting about Claire is how she had turned herself into a public figure and the ambivalence behind that. Like she says about her husband, Cal, one time that she found herself talking about him in terms of his qualities, but that it began to have no texture for her. So in that very specific process of a widow turning herself into a public widow, I thought she was an interesting character. And I think that's what works for this novel the best, I would say, is getting behind what's a very public unfolding, a news story. It's almost like you're getting the backstory of a news story. And I think that's where the novel is at its best. But I was I was more drawn to Mo, I have to admit, his darkness, his torturedness, his kind of, you know, middle finger in the face of the policeman and everyone trying to turn him into one thing or another thing. I found a lot more tension around Mo than I did around Claire. What, what did you guys think? I think you're absolutely right that, you know, these two figures really hold a lot of the specificity of the situation, right? They become stand-ins for everyone else's emotions too, right? They become public um, expressions of grief, of widowhood, of victimization, of persecution, of all sorts of bigotry and so on and so forth. But I actually found myself drawn more to the minor characters, you know, or who would be the minor characters like, you know, Nuruddin or the children or the little boy who creates that little, you know, pile of stones. Oh, and that pile of that, stones is so memorable. Yes, yeah. exactly. And I thought that, in fact, um, Waldman, I think she's better when she does details, but when she observes things, you know, she has this really wonderful eye for understanding, you know, nuances when you put things together, when you put people together between relationships. And the conversations were always to me more interesting than the descriptions of, you know, just events or something like that, where it became a little too journalistic in some ways and too much ripped from the headlines kind of a voice. So I found it myself sort of, you know, getting very caught up in the details, which I thought was one of the powerful parts of the book. Can you think of another detail like the stones? I'm just trying to think in my mind of a detail. A lot of them came out when you had, as you said, the, the quieter characters like Asma, who's the Bangladeshi right. character who plays a minor and then eventually a central role exactly. in this book, which we won't get to exactly. yet. But a lot of the mm -hmm. details around Asma's life, she's the sort of anonymous character in the novel, anonymous in the kind of news sense because her husband was illegal when he was was killed in the World Trade Center. And so he was on the fringes of the whole public debate. But she's a nice and unexpected character. I think there are some funny observations in the book, too. Like, for example, one of the kind of malevolent characters in the book is the governor of New York, who <laughs> emerges as this manipulator of this jury and this whole process of selection. And we meet her when she's on her elliptical machine. So she's, you know, working out even as she's directing traffic among her staff and among the person who's chairing the jury. And in those moments, I felt like the social commentary and the kind of overt political structure of the book worked. But I had more questions about it when it became more thematic and we were asking mm -hmm. these big questions, you know, is it anti-Muslim to oppose the creation of this memorial by an Islamic architect? And what's the role of the 9-11 families? There were moments where the book kind of gets caught up in these big questions and it your one is drawn out of the kind of literary reality it's created, I think. By the way, I forgot to say, this is a caveat I should have put in there. I know Amy. She and I were friends when she lived in Washington. She is married to a good friend of mine, and I forgot to say that. So I, I want to put that out there. But let's talk about Mo and what happens to him and how he ping-pongs between his own view of himself, which is thoroughly Americanized, and the American's view of himself, which is, I think, as soon as they uncover the name, she begins the chapter with someone on the committee who has chosen this person saying, 
saying, Jesus fucking Christ, it's a goddamn Muslim. So it really (laughs) – that's the first lines of the chapter. So it really does get thrown in your face what the public reaction to this discovery is going to be. Did either one of you want to say initially what happens to Mo and what ringer is he put through? Well, I think he's a bit of a caricature in that sense, in the sense that he's made into this Muslim male figure to whom things are happening, right? Mm-hmm. To whom this persecution is happening, who actually is until 9-11 and until this selection is a very elite kind of a figure, right? He's educated. He comes with some sort of, you know, cultural background to him. And until, you know, 9-11, figures like that actually were not seen as threats. We're not seen as, you know, problematic in any way. But he's not a religious man. No, he's he not religious. Turban, he's he he's American. Mosque, exactly. Right? He's completely he's, assimilated. He calls himself Mo, not Muhammad. He calls exactly. himself Mo and he exactly. dates like, so, you know, skinny design, you know, graphic exactly. design girls, right? Japanese women. Right. right. And in fact on that level, so the first thing that struck me, because I'm I'm an architectural historian and and an architect as well. And so for me, he came out to be so strongly a character of an architect. And that being like this man with a vision and his ambition is such that it subsumes him entirely. His personal relationships, you know, are secondary. Everything is secondary to his ambition, right? And in that way, to me, that felt very, you know, strange, a a strange figure to put this you know, very textured story on because she reverted to something that, you know, was in the, in the fountainhead or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. like this very particular kind of a Frank Lloyd Wright figure. Were you saying a caricature, like it's not somebody you recognized in, you know, as a, as an architecture well, extreme type? Extreme version. Well, an of... extreme version, right? Uh-huh. And unfortunately, actually, <laughs> you recognize the figure all the time, right? Uh-huh. Um, in a sense, exactly in an extreme version of what an architect might be. So why doesn't that make him the perfect person to put this on? I mean, the perfect sort of universal, you know, citizen of the world type person who's then forced into this situation. I found it very difficult to empathize with him. Uh-huh, right? And on that level, I didn't find him universal at all. I found him actually very distant and so very difficult to enter into his personality beyond this sort of figure that she had sketched. Because you wouldn't have sympathy for such a person in life, right? Is that what you mean? Well, such people obviously exist, but yeah, yeah, maybe I wouldn't find such a person sympathetic. But isn't it also that this is the role he plays in the narrative? I mean, what you liked about him, Hannah, is that he basically refuses to be defined. He won't answer for his design. He won't give the context for it. He says, you know, asked about where he got the idea for it. He says, use your imagination. Well, this is a classic move that artists make, right? That you're supposed to be reading the work and not the explanation, that it's not supposed to need a big caption. And yet in this particular circumstance, that is this incredibly freighted position to take. And so on the one hand, I actually really liked about him that he wouldn't answer the questions and found the choice he had to make between, you know, being completely his citizen of the world identity, you know, presenting himself only as secular versus being somewhat radicalized as a Muslim. And we see him go Mm -hmm. through some transitions. He grows a beard at one point. He does decide to go to the mosque and try praying. He fasts. Yeah, exactly. So I actually felt like that was very real. And yet I think the withholding nature of his character makes him feel pretty cold throughout the book. It's a difficult narrative choice because something is appealing. I can see that if, you know, if you're plotting out this novel, you think, I want to throw all this heat 
on this very cold person. That's an interesting choice to make. Right. You know, there's all this right. heat everywhere, and he is a block of ice, and he's going to refuse to melt. And that's an interesting situation. And so she then has him melt piece by piece. You know, he 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 tries out being a Muslim a little bit. You have a little bit of interaction with his father, who's a first generation immigrant, so a little bit more connected to the old country. He dates this woman, Lila, who is uh, much Layla. Layla, I guess is her name. She's from the. Mm-hmm. It's called Iranian, Mac. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I don't remember what it stands for. But she stands for the kind of more passionate, more committed, grow a beard, be out there, you know, own your Muslim identity. She's a, she's a lawyer, but she defends the Muslim cause. And she's so, an advocate. She's an advocate. And he says, oh, she's not the type I would normally be attracted to. You know, she's not a she's not a stick insect of a graphic designer. But there was something about him in this situation that was drawn to her. But he doesn't break. I mean, even towards the end of the novel and the epilogue, which I won't talk about quite yet, he never, ever really breaks. I mean, you get one sort of contemplative moment towards the end of the book, but he remains at his core what he ever was. Let's shift a little bit to another character I want to mm-hmm. hear what you guys think about. This is Sean. He is the brother of a fireman who died in 9-11. He is kind of a fuck-up himself and has taken on his brother's death as a kind of mantle. And he becomes one of the main opponents to Muhammad Khan and his design. And we watch him through the book struggle with this very overtly political role he's taken on. And then he makes a move where he pulls the headscarf off of a Muslim woman and kind of starts an epidemic of this kind of protest throughout the country. And it was, I have to say, this is one detail in the book that almost scared me because I, the idea of it, it seems like one of those things you read about and you think, oh my God, this could totally start to happen. And it's really upsetting. So anyway, I was In fact, that. it's happening. Yeah, I was having that reaction to it. And Sean is very, is kind of obsessed with Clara Burwell and bringing her around his side. And and he does manage to really get under her skin. I actually thought that um his burly power as a character was really important to the book. But I wonder, Kishwara, what you thought yeah, of Yeah, no, I, I found him actually very interesting, precisely because he was just made up of all these accidents, right, of things going wrong in his life. Every time he tried to make a gesture, it would come out wrong. Um, his parents see him as, you know, a complete failure. And he sort of really typifies to me the fact that, you know, situations like this, as much as can be controlled and the author controls it really well, so much happens accidentally, right? I mean, the situation, the, the selection of Muhammad, there's so much is dependent on things actually missing their target, right? And he sort of typifies that aspect of the novel. And I found him very successful, you know, as a sort of literary character, but also sort of you know, representing the nature of the situation, too, that it's made up of all of these mistakes and missed opportunities uh, and things, like I said, going wrong. I went back and forth on Sean because part of me wanted an opponent who was not quite so pathetic. You know, part of me wanted, you know, he was pathetic and that woman Debbie Dawson was pathetic. And, you know, that the, the whole opposition just seemed like sort of a bunch of morons, you know. On the other hand, as you said, Kishwar, the way he behaved really echoed for me the way news happens. You know, as a journalist, you have the sense, you know, that things are the way they are because they have to be, that things are predetermined. Or maybe as a reader, not as a journalist, you know, you're always trying to create a narrative and something kind of fixed and absolute over what are essentially a random series of events that you're just creating a narrative out of. And that was a little bit like Sean, like he was desperately trying to create a very fixed narrative over something that kept slipping through his fingers and that was clearly made up by, you know, Freudian slash, you know, fraternal sort of accidents that never 
quite went right for him. And it's a little bit like how the news happens. You know, you're trying to grab a hold of it, give it a headline, you know, give it some meaning. You know, Obama does this. You know, Obama's weak. Obama's like this. But in fact, it's just a series of accidents that are happening every day that you have to turn into a news story. Well, I wondered what both of you thought about the fact that she... Amy Waldman is a journalist, and she brings that sensibility to this text. But I found it rather cynical because the one character who represents the, the field, <laughs> a, Alyssa, Alyssa Spears, is most unsympathetic. And was it fair? I mean, I wondered what you two thought of. She really <laughs> reserves her disgust and scorn for the Alyssa character. I, yes. I actually kind of loved Alyssa precisely because she was so easy to hate. She scurries through the book, you know, working for the New York Post. She's like a gutter snipe. There's no depth to which she will not stoop for the sake of a story or later on a column in her one moment where she becomes a columnist. You know, I felt like Waldman's journalistic background was both a great strength and then perhaps a weakness. It was a strength in the sense that she's such a keen observer of these social mores. And I had moments where I felt like the book was, yes, it was ripped from the headlines, but it felt a little like Tom Wolfe or, you know, Jonathan Franzen's book Freedom, where you're getting at these larger truths. And it struck me that this is such a high bar she set for herself. It's so hard to make literature out of current events. There were moments where she succeeded, but then in the end, I wondered how truly memorable and profound this book was and whether it was really going to stick with me. And I kept Mm -hmm. comparing it in my head to the book Emperor's Children by Clara Massoud, which is my favorite book about 9-11 and which is much more glancing and subtle in its treatment of 9-11. And I'm just not sure that this book, which sort of charges directly at the event and its memory, can can get to that same kind of level. Hannah, what do you think? Well, first, I want to go back to the journalist. <laughs> Not only was she vile and unlovable, but she was effectively responsible for the tragedy at the center of this novel. That's you know, right. I yeah. mean, that's mm-hmm. how she portrays her. It's not just that she was unlikable. And the other thing you guys are forgetting is there was another journalist there who was even more despicable than Alyssa Spear or Spire is this guy Sarge. It was when he when Mo goes right. on the radio and he lures right, the him. The Rush Limbaugh figure. Exactly. He's sort yeah. of the Rush Limbaugh figure and he's utterly dishonest. You know, he's the absolute worst kind of journalist. He lures Mo onto the show being charming and then becomes a complete mercenary once the radio switch goes on. And then afterwards it's like, hey buddy, you know, let's go for a drink. He's like one of those guys who you, who's really truly awful. So, um, so yeah, the journalists got it hard. You should explain what the tragedy you were talking about is, Hannah. Okay, so, but first I want to just speak to your sense of the strength and the weakness of this being a journalistic novel. I actually thought Mm -hmm. one great strength is how well it was plotted. I was imagining it almost as a magazine story. I thought the pacing of this was really great. Masterful. Yeah. Yeah, it was really masterful. And I think that's important for a novel that's about architecture, really. Like she is building, she is sort of building a novel sort of bit by bit by bit. And I also thought it was an interesting and probably wise decision to work in a relatively small space. You know, you're talking Mm -hmm. about the choosing of a memorial. So she was not working on a giant canvas. She was working on a relatively limited canvas. And I think that was a good idea for a first novel by a journalist. And then the question that remains is, you know, then does it go deep enough? And I wonder, Kishwar, what you think as a person who's not a journalist? 
I read this book and then I was on a flight from, I don't know where, somewhere to somewhere, reading the International Herald Tribune. And there was, of course, an article about um, the Danish situation, right, with the cartoons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also there's a huge um, movement with, what's his name, Geert Wilde. Mm -hmm. I think he's Dutch and he has a freedom party that's very anti-Muslim. And so there were a lot of things that I was reading in this that were really resonated very closely to me as somebody, well, you know, who's invested in this information and, and whatnot, but also that there were real figures that she was basing it on and not just the Rush Limbaugh ones, but, you know, the Bangladeshi widow. There is, in fact, a Bangladeshi widow who now lives in Iowa, whose son was born after her husband was killed and he had worked as a, as a waiter and I think windows over the world or something like that. Oh. And so, you know, there's actually real people that she is basing this on. You know, on the one hand, I found it very clever um, and on the other hand, I found it rather troubling because, you know, for an academic, we always have to cite our sources <laughs> and be very clear about what, where we are getting our inspiration from and who we're nailing, if you want to put it that way. And so, you know, I kept thinking that how many people am I recognizing? How many am I missing? How much of this is, you know, well, how fair is it on a certain level, you know, to use that journalistic voice of hers, you know, what about the ethical dimensions of what she's doing, which I found a little more problematic and sort of which I think really made me hold back from liking the book. I loved it as a work of literature. But when I, you know, if we go to the deeper meanings of what it does, I wasn't as I wasn't I'm a little more ambivalent about it. That wasn't the question you asked. No, no, that's really interesting. <laughs> that's, an, that's a fantastic answer. I wasn't thinking about it that way at all. Because I just assume, you know, when she's moved away from journalism into novel writing, she gets all right. the artistic license she wants. But as an academic, you know, you might have a different a different perspective on that. There are still ethical questions that remain, even if you're not naming names or, you know, right. talking about anonymity. We can talk about those themes in regards to this particular widow, the wife of the illegal immigrant, whose name is right. Asma. Her name is Asma. Asma. Mm -hmm. And she's Bangladeshi. And just to say what happens to her... Layla, uh, this lawyer we discussed, has won her a settlement and so she's comfortable, but she has to pretend she's not because she lives in this Bangladeshi community. She's taken care of sort of by the patriarch of the Bangladeshi community, who's a very interesting figure who comes to feel responsible for her. And then as the novel goes on, she comes to a public hearing. She's compelled to come to a hearing. She's a person with a kind of inner fierce, one would almost say feminist spirit, which hasn't been allowed to express itself just because of who she is and where she was born. She doesn't really speak English, but she has that kernel in her. And so when she reads about this hearing, she takes the train and goes to the hearing and speaks up and makes what everybody considers the most moving statement at the hearing. And this is a culminating moment in the novel because mm -hmm. we're building to a crescendo in which the public is weighing in about Mohammed Khan's design. And so her voice, she's the person who shames all the opponents of the design by saying, you are confusing the bad things that some Muslims do with Islam itself. And Islam is this peace-loving religion. And my husband would, you know, never have hurt anyone. And this memorial is for him in the same way that it's for all of your relatives. You know, she's saying to these other 9-11 families. And at least for a moment, the conflict in the novel recedes. But then the tragedy is that she is then assassinated. And that, that the novel doesn't really try to recover from that, I think. 
just to put it in some context, the conflict has been slowly growing more public. So we start in a very private space where it's these, you know, you're in a meeting room and they're just discussing who this architect is and there's a committee and then suddenly there are ads run and then suddenly it sort of becomes this huge national issue and there's a giant hearing. And at that point, Asma comes in and sort of makes it small again, makes it intimate and manageable. And then this is very clever in terms of the structure of the novel. You're not sure which way it's going to go. Is Asma going to save the day, you know, make everything possible for Mo, make his life great, have this plan that he had be accepted and that's going to be the new memorial? Or is something else going to happen? And as Emily said, something else did happen. Now, what did you guys think of Asma as a character or the way that she was used in the plot? Because she's a little bit of a character. She's not quite as fleshed out as everybody else. Else, but very endearing, I would say. I found her very sympathetic. Again, you know, loved the observations that, you know, the, the details that Amy Waldman brings in, you know, like the type of scarf she's wearing, you know, and um, the types of food she's cooking. I mean, those kinds of details are really, obviously, she's researched this and she's brought herself into these characters' lives in a way that when you think of the diversity of characters that are in this book, I think it's quite an achievement, right? That she doesn't, she really makes an effort to make them real within their own context. There's a great real. moment where Asma says, and who is Oprah? You know, that's... Exactly. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> that's kind of where she, she sees things through Asma's eyes, like she's, Asma's taking the subway for the first time. She's mostly home with her baby son. And, you know, she watches women put on lipstick in the subway and marvels is how they treat the subway like just another room in their house, you know, so she sees things through her eyes in an interesting way. Right, exactly, exactly. But again, you know, it was very weird to me when I realized that this character was, I assume, based on this other woman who lives and whose children, you know, know of the, the tragedy and who actually left New York City and I think lives now in Iowa someplace because she wanted the distance from here and there, I kept sort of flashing back and forth between the character that Waldman has created and then the one that maybe exists somewhere. It was a sympathetic character, but again, I kept losing it and losing her in some ways. What's the ethical sort of tear for you? Is it the idea that, you know, in the novel, you put somebody who's real in place and then you can assassinate them or you can do it's the manipulation that's that's troubling for you? Well, in this case, I think it really is because this person actually still well, you know, the real Bangladeshi widow actually is alive and has uh-huh. two little children. And since I'm a mom, I would just not want my children to read me as a character than getting knocked off right. in a book. <laughs> you know, it, was, right. it was very visceral on that level. I was uh-huh. like, oh my God, that's well, not Well, maybe nice. there's something different <laughs> about appropriating the story of an anonymous, ordinary person. Usually we see, right. you know, the lens of history told by a novelist through famous people, and then right. they have already their public identity. And that's just one more element of it being grafted on, whereas this is a little different. I want to ask a, another question, which I think actually Ozma's defense of Mohammed Khan's design kind of brings to a head in the novel. So Khan's design is a garden. It's a very particular kind of scripted garden with a lot of clean lines. And the big question, one of them in the book, is whether this is an essentially Islamic design. That's why everyone wants to know where Khan got the inspiration and whether the elements of the garden are the Islamic version of paradise. And then if that is true, 
why invoke that paradise? Is he, you know, sending a lesson to the terrorists that, you know, they succeeded by sending their planes into the World Trade Center? That's, of course, a sort of horrifying idea. Or is could we have a completely different and happier universal message that comes out of this version? So now, Kishwar, you are the actual architect um, among us. So I really want to know what you think about this. So just moving backwards. If I were to imagine what this character Mo did, right, and then sort of the spoiler at the end, and which he actually is inspired by a, a garden in Kabul, in Kabul. But I think that as an architect, as somebody who's designing this, he would have found a beautiful space, right, and found the garden to be a beautiful metaphor for something about regrowth and all of those things that come out in the novel, right? That it's, I think, a rather appropriate site for, you know, object for a memorial, sort of, you know, to use that. And so I, I thought that was very clever. Now, where it goes, of course, is somewhere else, right, where everybody starts then talking about some kind of something called an Islamic garden, because indeed, in Islamic history, and in fact, in the Quran itself, there's a lot of mention about gardens, gardens of paradise, gardens under which rivers flow, gardens which are promised to you after your death, and so on. So gardens do play a very important role in Muslim sort of eschatology and theology. And so even for ordinary Muslims, you know, this is something that one dreams of, right? That when you die, that's where you will go. So it is certainly a very important place. But on the other hand, I think there are mentions of a garden in Genesis too, right? Um, that yes, the Lord a planned. Famous one. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you know, I mean, to sort of so that flip side, that sort of sophisticated argument against calling it an um, an Islamic garden somehow just got left, you know, um, to Claire Burwell trying to sort of make scramble and say something about it that it isn't an Islamic garden. But in and of itself, I it, it's a form. A garden is such a sort of essential aspect of human inhabitation since millennia that. What can you say beyond that? I felt like that was the place I was in for the end of the book until the epilogue. And then Walden does this thing where she fast forwards in time and Muhammad Khan has become essentially someone who has patrons abroad. He has left the United States. He is working for very wealthy Muslim businessmen and leaders in the Islamic world. And it turns out that after his design was in fact rejected finally for the 9-11 site that he has built his garden as a kind of pleasure garden for some very wealthy person outside the United States. So then we see him being interviewed and then we see Claire Burwell watching this interview and seeing this garden, which she was so taken by at first and then ended up distancing herself from very bitterly. And refracted through her view, the garden is Islamic in a kind of negative way. The calligraphy... That in the has, end. In the in very the end, end, right? Yeah, yeah. The calligraphy that was supposed to have the names of the dead of 9-11 is now in Arabic script. And that to Claire Burwell. And they're Quranic verses. Right. I felt like there was a way in which the book ended in a sense, by saying that Muhammad Khan really had potentially betrayed his audience. And yet it was also, you're supposed to understand that he himself felt utterly betrayed by the fact that his submission had been rejected. You know, I was thinking about this in terms of sources of inspiration and the changing nature of truth. I mean, the kinds of issues that mm -hmm. we talked about. Obviously, Mo could have gone any which way. This garden could have been built any which way. And that, right. you know, it, it's hard. You know, I can ask you guys this. What do you think she was saying about sources of creative inspiration? Because I think that trick at the end, it would be too unsophisticated. This is not an unsophisticated novel. 
travel. So she is not saying at the end when she describes a trip that he took to Kabul and was, in fact, at some level inspired by a garden. Oh, look, you know, Mo was lying all this time. He is this no, secret Muslim, right. you know, yeah. and he was actually failing to tell the truth because he was hiding this deep, dark and it's secret, a very right? beautiful scene, the scene of him in Kabul. You I thought that was one of the most successful scenes. In the book. And yep. it's one of the few times you feel like you really get inside his skin as a character, I think. Right. right. I agree with you, Hannah. And yet, I felt like the epilogue, the turn at the end, we were back to the kind but of you know, cold that, mo. Cold mo yes. as the architect, as uh-huh. this sort of very mercenary figure who will do anything for a commission, right? I mean, so that's what it came down to. And I found it so deeply cynical. <laughs> um, you know, because, well, of course, you know, somewhere along the line, I think his father had said to him that, oh, yes, you know, yes, you came to the mosque with me, but I understand that buildings are your religion, right? And that kind of comes through throughout the book where, you know, or then the mother says to Mo that all the good gardens are imaginary, I think, um, something like that. So, you know, the fact that, in fact, you know, religion has nothing to do with this at all, right? It's about building something. I actually quite liked the epilogue. It was clear that Mo had been backed into a corner, right? That he had failed to process this, you know, in the way that we would want him to. He was still kind of an unrealized person. He had failed to have any, you know, satisfying intimate relationships. He he was still fighting the fight at some level, like he'd gone back to his cold core. So he was not, you know, redeemed by this whole situation. On the other hand, the way that this unfolds at the end is somebody, and we don't know who it is, but it's a person named Molly and her boyfriend are revisiting. Her boyfriend is Claire's son. Son. Okay, but we don't know that for a while. So initially, we just know that there's a person named Molly and her son is making a documentary about this whole situation. And it's clear that he flinched. You know, there's a lot of emotion he's bottling up. I'm not sure she Mm -hmm. does it 100% effectively, but she does make it clear that, for example, he can't bear to watch Layla. He asks them, oh, have you shot Layla? And they say, yes, we have. And he says, no, I can't. Please don't show that to me. You know, he says something like, I don't have all day or something, but it's clear right, but that clearly these it's too painful. They are too painful so that he's locked up some box of pain somewhere from this whole thing and made himself into this cold architect. So, you know, it's not change or redemption, but there's something happening there. I wouldn't say that I liked the end, but I actually have a lot of respect for it because Waldman complicated the picture that she drew throughout. I mean, the scene in Kabul, which is the last scene before the epilogue, you feel it's not utterly conclusive, but it's uplifting. Right. And then right. the end returns And he's to warm. You know, you've finally yes. gotten to the core of him. Like, he's there. He's having a true spiritual moment that's not hardened by anything. And so you understand, actually, okay, this is where inspiration comes from. Like, what has he been evading and bullshitting us all this time? Like, inspiration does come from a warm moment like this. And it is a spiritual moment, yes. right? And he acknowledges that, that you forget who you are and that this is the one place where, oh, and I, in fact, I think, isn't there that line she says, or that he's thinking that this is the true submission, yes. right? So I think that was central to understanding what this book is really about uh, to me, that in some ways, and I maybe again, this is very clever of Waldman that she never says it outright, except in that one little line, right? That we're always sort of the one thing we never really are acknowledging is a the spiritual and emotional content. I mean, we talk about emotions, but we don't talk about the spiritual, right? Although we're talking about religion constantly in this novel, right? And this uh-huh. is one of those few moments, those very few moments where you actually have that um, encounter with something that is, you know, a little bit more complex. Right. Except for with Asma, who seems to have this very kind of childlike almost relationship with spirituality. I mean, she's she accesses it much more easily than anybody else in the novel. Right. Now, can I ask you guys about this paradox? So it seemed to me at the end, 
another thing that was clever about this novel, there was no chance that Mo could have been but destroyed by this whole process because there was no way he could have admitted this source of inspiration or this Now, moment. is that true? That was my question at the end. Should he have told the story about Kabul? Would people have ever been able to accept it? Is it... Is it anything that an artist should do to tell the origin story of their creation? Well, I don't think you can, right? I mean, because it's never one thing. I think that was probably one of many other thoughts, inspirations, ideas, you know, I mean, just drawing a grid, because that's ultimately what this garden was that he drew, is something any modernist would do. And, you know, as he <laughs> says, um, you know, he could have accessed it from Mondrian or from anybody else, too, you know, so it really, you can't ever pinpoint one thing. And in that way, I felt... In the beginning, I felt he was right not to answer, you know, and not to say anything. But towards the end, when he's sitting alone with Claire, he could have said anything and she would have let him, you know, right. she would have, she gave him that opportunity to just say something, anything. And there and I thought he... she could have listened to this explanation about the garden and cobble, And right? she would have been fine. Exactly. Right. Right. Um, so there I just felt like, oh... There's a cruelty to his withholding yes. at that particular moment. Or maybe Amy's saying something about the difficulty of expressing such things for most people and maybe for educated people and for people who live in a certain world. Like you were right. saying, you know, we talk about events, you know, even something like the Middle East conflict, you know, we talk about it in terms of history and politics and emotions. And but it's very difficult to express or put into words or conversation the true spirituality that touches some creative source. It's an idiom that's hard to put into words or or politics or events or whatever it just doesn't fit quite but is that also saying something that in current life the news travels so quickly the media has a certain such an immense power and everything is about speed that that spirituality is very difficult to encounter right it's not unless you've sort of had a bad stomach landed up in Kabul right <laughs> found yourself in the corner in some building that you're going to have that quiet moment that I think that was sort of part of it the pacing of the book right that you suddenly have this very powerful quiet moment that is so difficult to capture if you're talking about a novel about contemporary life so what did you guys think of the very end, the unveiling of William, Claire's son, and Claire's illness? It came very quickly at the end. And so what happens is that this the cameraman who is bumbling through Mo's apartment with this person, Molly, <laughs> it turns out that he's William and he's Claire's son. And the importance of William being there is that now you're almost in Garden of Eden fantasy territory. This thing never got built. He's never really seen it. He's heard his mother, you know, tell him about the garden as a story, and he's held on to that story. And it's how connected with his father's memory, but it never existed for him. And so he seems to be on some kind of quest for the garden as a pure thing, you know. And he builds his small pile of stones in a corner of the garden as this memory of his father. Yeah. That right. was very powerful. I found it very yeah. moving. I, I mean, I just I experienced it as a mother, too. I just like it was. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It Who is a get moving. off on these little Hana, things? Hana, what did you think? When we were talking about religion, like Asma's access to religion being so easy and childlike, you know, it's like it's almost like his understanding of what architecture is for or what building <laughs> is for, as opposed to Mo's, you know, very at the end kind of mercenary, crass, money making right. citizen of the world. You have this, you know, moment, you know, I'm going to build these stones. They have so much more emotional resonance than this probably, you know, many million dollar <laughs> palace you've built for this Saudi sheik who doesn't deserve it, you know. So it was kind of a nice moment. 
I think we should close out this excellent conversation. I feel like this novel does leave us with a lot of questions as well as floating some answers and that that's one of its strengths. And I'm so glad you guys talked about it with me. Thanks so much yeah, for thank coming. Thank you so much. Thank you. Before we close, I should say that our book for October will be This Beautiful Life by Helen Shulman. So if you're out there listening, we would love for you to pick up a copy and join us the next time out. And before we close, I want to thank our producer, Abdullah Rufus, and our executive producer, podcast chief, Andy Bowers, without whom none of these podcasts would be possible. For Kishwar Rizvi and Hannah Rosen, I'm Emily Bazlan. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs>